0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, hi, Gil. Uh, welcome to our um, talk and a question and answer for uh, from the uh, IMC uh, worldwide online community. And uh, I thought before we jumped into the questions, Maybe you could uh, update the community on what's been happening uh, here at IMC.
1: Thank you, Marguerite. It's nice to see you again and be with you. And, and uh, I enjoy a lot uh, to receive these kinds of questions from the wider online community and, and have this little connection through the question and answer session that I have. It's been one of the great pleasures for me uh, in recent years is the people who come to IMC to visit one time from the audio Dharma world, people who listen to the talks from far away, uh, sometimes from Europe, uh, from all over the country, from Canada, from Mexico. And uh, they listen to the talks, they've been listening to for some time, and when they have an occasion to come by uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, they'll come down and make a visit. And at the end of the talks that I give, when I'm here, they often come over, introduce themselves, and talk a little bit about the value that these talks have given them, and, and their delight to at IMC in person and, and uh, I take great pleasure in, in meeting them and through them realizing uh, that uh, IMC and Audio Dharma were connected to a wide circle of people, a wide network of people all over the globe. Um, and I'm very grateful for this that we have this extended uh, connections and kind of friendships all over the world. So that was very nice. And uh, one of the nice things also that's happening here at IMC is is the building of our retreat center. Six weeks ago, we started the renovation work. It'll be hopefully finished in October. And by November, we'll have our own retreat center for about 40 people, where people will be able to come and do residential retreats. And uh, this is very exciting for me and for our community. And uh, people have been very supportive of our efforts. We've uh, raised pretty much all the money we need for the renovation. And now we're looking for uh, raise a little bit more money for uh, buying the furniture because it doesn't really work to have an empty shell of a building. Mm-hmm. We need mattresses and tables and lights and very, you know, various things, uh, kitchen supplies, kitchen things. So, so by hopefully by October we'll have all those things and up and running.
0: Wow, it's so exciting. Um, so let's, let's start with the first question. Uh, this is a question from Krishna in Belmont, um, and wanting to know, uh, while practicing uh, Vipassana meditation, the feelings or sensations one gets in the body are anitya. Then what is nitya, or permanent? Is there anything that is permanent, according to the Buddha?
1: Yes, yeah, so in Pali, the word uh, is anitya, And that means impermanent or inconstant, and so the permanent is Nietzsche. And uh, and Buddhism puts a lot of emphasis on the insight into impermanence. And it's not meant to be a belief, that you kind of understand rationally, uh, logically, why everything is impermanent, uh, and then believe it. But rather, um, uh, to develop your mindfulness to be strong enough, with strong concentration, to begin uh, uh, seeing how our experience, all the things that we experience, are impermanent and flux and constant, changing all the time. And uh, I think of it more as a revelation, because we're kind of doing the practice until <clears throat> impermanence shows itself very clearly to us. <clears throat> we don't have to. We don't have to impose our idea of impermanence on things. Though know, sometimes it's useful to know that things are inconstant. To know that our emotions <clears throat> are come and go like the weather, as opposed to falling into the delusion of permanence that because you 're feeling um, not feeling well one day uh, it 's uh, not believing well i 'm always going to be this way, that would be the delusion of permanence or if you 're feeling really happy, I remember once many, many years ago feeling really happy <clears throat> and uh, for a period of time and telling a friend i 'll never be depressed again. <laughs> So that was the delusion of permanence. And, uh, and then within a couple of months, I was more depressed than I've ever been in my life. I set myself up for that. So, um, so sometimes it's useful to be reminded that certain things are, you know, come and go. But for Vipassana practice, the idea is to uh, practice until impermanence shows itself very clearly. There are things along the way that might appear as being permanent, And uh, so, one of the things that sometimes appears as permanent is consciousness, uh, or some sense of uh, beingness, might be, or awareness itself might seem to be permanent, uh, or some sense of self, some deep inner core seed of self. Sometimes people feel that maybe are permanent. And the instructions in Buddhist practice, when uh, you come across something that appears to be permanent, is to look more closely at it, to bring your uh, careful mindfulness, concentrated attention to look more carefully and, uh, and see what happens, see what goes on. And inevitably what will happen is that you'll see that that also is impermanent, that also will pass away. And so in Buddhist practice, it's pretty rare in, um, to uh, be left with anything that could qualify as something permanent, Though, occasionally, people will uh, uh, say something like that nirvana, the experience of liberation, is timeless, and and that it's outside of time. And so, in in timeless, it has a certain kind of permanence. You know, it neither comes nor goes. But but exactly, you know, does nirvana have a... Is it a construct, is something created... What's its status? Uh, Does it make sense to talk about permanent and impermanent for nirvana? Um, Probably not. Um, And uh, so there's some debate about whether nirvana is permanent or not. But the practice of Buddhism is to keep looking, keep looking, whenever you find something that seems permanent, and, um, and see what happens.
0: Thank you. So the second question is from David in Philadelphia. He's wondering about the connection, if any, between Buddhism and nature, and if Buddhism has anything to say about being an environmentalist? It's
1: a wonderful question. And uh, the word word Dharma sometimes is translated as nature. And and, uh, in some schools of Buddhism, uh, nature is seen as a very powerful teacher for ourselves. And we're uh, trying to see very deeply into the nature of things, into the nature of nature. How things are. And, um, and to be out in the woods, to live in the wilderness, to be a forest monk or a nun, for example, uh, is a part of the function of that is to feel a certain a connection to nature that informs our practice, informs our life, helps us to see ourselves more deeply, and helps us to let go of some of the deep-held attachments we have that are um, easy to have when we're in the middle of our social life with everyone. Uh, many people find a different perspective for themselves when they're out in nature and spending t- you know, days out in the wilderness. Uh, it can be very helpful to free ourselves. Um, and the the line between humans and nature that is, some cultures have made very strong. Uh, in uh, in the core teachings of Buddhism, there's no line between nature and humans. There's a, definitely a strong connection. There's no um, and. Um, and empathy and intimacy between them and to be to let go of your attachments uh, is one of the ways to allow oneself to feel a greater sense of connectedness with life around us including nature nature the natural world. The mythology of Buddhism makes a very strong connection between nature and human beings nature and especially the ethical quality of human beings. The more unethical people are, um, there's a way in which that translates to a more, uh, uh, a harsher, uh, um, decadent, decaying world and, and decaying nature. And the more ethical people are, the more um, vibrant and alive and beneficial the natural world is. And um, so, you know, it's not so hard, at least in our modern world. To see a very uh, direct connection between ethics and the the quality of the natural world around us, and so one of the things Buddhism says is that uh, we need to we need to um, one of the ways to improve the world, the natural world, is to work on the human ethics, and uh, liberate ourselves from greed and from hate and uh, things that uh, make us insensitive to the wider natural world and the caring of it, and for an environmentalist. Uh, with Buddhism, does Buddhism have anything to say about being an environmentalist? Um, I think that Buddhism would be very encouraging of someone being an environmentalist. The idea of working out of care and compassion for a world, I think, is integral to a mature Buddhist, Buddhist practice. I would very much hope that someone who develops in Buddhism becomes someone who cares for the world around them, whether it's for your neighbors or your family, or for some people because of their the conditions and situation of their life, perhaps they become active environmentalists, and uh, we certainly could use more of that. One of the things that Buddhist Buddhist practice has to offer for anybody who's an activist, including environmentalist, <clears throat> is that um, to help them look very carefully at what motivates them and uh, their reactions, their attitudes, their intentions, so that um, they're not, people are not acting out of anger uh, or greed or confusion. And uh, so, only so that when we are involved with uh, uh, the fight to or the struggle to improve the environment, that it's not done out of hostility or fear or um, or a strong sense of us us versus them, but we can do the environmental environmental work with great passion and dedication, but without these um, harmful attitudes that can come along with it, stressful attitudes.
0: Thank you. Uh, Next is Alice, uh, who is um, confused about whether one is to explore or investigate or look at something while meditating, or how exactly it is best to look at or investigate things such as clinging, aversion, anger, doubt, all the big hindrances. She says, if I think about these big issues, I get lost and wonders when and how is the best way to do this. Is it off or on the cushion, or both?
1: This is a good question. An um, important part of Buddhist practice and of mindfulness practice is uh, investigation, looking more closely at what our experience is, understanding it more deeply. Uh, it's important to understand that uh, this investigation is uh, often uh meant to be in balance with other factors of mind and uh, two of them that come to mind right now is with concentration and tranquility, or three of them, and and equanimity. So, uh, Concentration is stability of mind, stillness of mind, calmness of mind. Tranquility is also a calmness of mind and equanimity is a non-reactivity of mind. And if the investigation is in balance with those things, then investigation is less likely going to be, get tripped up into reactive uh, evaluation judgments of what's going on, and also it helps support investigation uh, not being analytical. So the idea is not to uh, go into our discursive mind and have commentary and anal- active analysis of our experience, but um, but rather to uh, feel it more fully. Feel it in the present moment. Experience it as it's actually happening in the present. Um, what is this right now? And so with a quiet and still mind, in a way that helps the mind maybe um, uh, have a meditative mind, be calmer and more settled, uh, to turn towards uh, something like our clinging, to turn, turn, turn towards the big issues we have, not to think about them, but to feel how what the impact is on our psychophysical life in the present moment. So, for example, if you have a big decision to make, there might be a lot of things you have to consider in being able to make that decision in a wise way. But there also might be a lot of fear and desires and confusion and a lot of different ideas that are interfering with your ability to make a decision. What meditation can offer, if you're going to investigate the impact that this big decision has on you, you wouldn't think about it in meditation, but rather you would feel and look at uh, what happens inside of you when you have this big issue that you're trying to grapple with. Uh, what parts of your body are tense? What parts are, st- are stressful? How does it affect your breathing? How does it, what emotions are coming into play in the present moment? Uh, what's the quality of your thinking mind? Is it tight? Is it uh, spinning around? Is it fragmented? Um, to really look in the present moment what the immediate experience is and try to separate yourself out from needing to answer, make a decision. And then to settle and relax all the things which are extra, all the things which are not needed, all the stress, the anxiety around something. And then at that point, you might be in a much better position to make a decision, understand what is needed. And that maybe you would do after you get out of meditation.
0: Next is Danny from Leeds in the UK. Um, He says, I try not to cause harm to others through my speech and actions. But equally, there are certain people I have to deal with in my life who I don't particularly like and a couple who I feel weary of and my intuition tells me to be careful around. I know that one of the ways I keep such people at a distance is to be somewhat spiky. Could you please say something about reconciling my right to choose who I want to allow in my life and the process of keeping some people at a distance? We may want to be closer to me when I feel comfortable with.
1: Um, so, I think this is a normal part of many people's lives, and uh, certainly, people you have a right to, to some degree to choose who you're with and uh, not to be around some people. I think at the beginning of this question, I think for in terms of Buddhist practice, is to appreciate that you don't have to like the people that you have goodwill towards that you can have goodwill you can have friendly free, friendly attitudes towards people without necessarily liking them uh, they might just be they might be doing things or behaving in ways which are uh, very uh, even distressing or very uncomfortable for you and, um, and or for whatever reason you might not have to like everyone but uh, independent of liking them you can have a, a basic human friendliness towards them or goodwill towards them But in having goodwill towards them, uh, it can be something that's private inside of you. Uh, You don't have to act on it. Having a friendly attitude or goodwill doesn't mean that you have to act friendly towards them or act in ways that um, express this. Uh, But perhaps having goodwill or friendly attitude will help you to explore other ways to keep your distance from them than being spiky. Um, Perhaps there are... uh, Ways that uh, are maybe more polite, more friendly, maybe um, uh, harm you less. Because whenever my assumption is if anybody who's spiky, uh, it hurts to do that. It's uncomfortable to do that. So are there ways of keeping your healthy distance from people who you don't want to be with without making yourself uncomfortable or them uncomfortable? And um, so that takes certain kind of uh, consideration and skill in conversation and in, in social uh, interactions, to know how to, um, uh, you know, uh, not engage with people, uh, not spend time with people without being impolite or mean or, or something. But certainly, you have permission to, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily spend time with people. And the art is to figure out how to do that uh, in a way that no one's harmed by it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, next is from André in Redwood City, um, so he, he's heard you mention a few times how in certain families or social circles, people interact with the idea that worrying is the same thing as caring. So with that in mind, how can one relate it to others with caring and compassion, uh, how can one relate to others with caring and compassion without having to do so in terms of their or any, for that matters, expectations?
1: Um, well, if the expectation that people have is that you're going to worry, and that's how you show your care or your love, uh, then um, there's a few possibilities. In some situations, it might be possible to talk about that very issue. Uh, I'm a great believer, whenever possible, of being articulate about what's going on, um, sitting down and saying, look, in our family, in our situation, it seems like the expectation is people like to worry uh, as a way of showing caring. And it's becoming increasingly hard for me to, and painful for me, to uh, continue with this worrying mode. And I would like to explore how to uh, show my caring and my, uh, for my family or my friends in a way that's not worrying And so please be prepared for this. You'll see me behaving a little bit differently, but please don't take this to be that I don't care. Uh, Look at it as if I'm trying to find new ways of doing it. And then we can talk about how it's going, if it makes you uncomfortable to change. So sometimes it's possible to uh, engage people and tell them upfront, honestly, what's going on in a way that um, is very friendly and not uh, offensive to them, not telling them they have to be different, but just saying that you're trying to do something differently. Sometimes the situation doesn't allow for that, but perhaps then you need to uh, uh, proactively uh, make it clear to them that uh, you do care for them, that you do love them or have compassion for them uh, through your speech or through your gestures, giving them a gift, telling them you care for them, showing them that you care, asking them how they are. And perhaps uh, they can learn that you do care a lot when you don't worry for them. So that's specifically around worry. The question was also, um, how do you care with people um, without having to do so in terms of their expectations? Um, Now, if if that's a more general question, then um, I think we want to take into account people's expectations. Uh, Sometimes expectations um, are reasonable. Sometimes you have an agreement with people. I think that, um, like, for example, in marriage... Um, marriage is usually seen as an agree- certain kinds of agreements come about how to be together, come with being married. And so there is an expectation of a certain behavior, a certain way of being. That if you don't live up to those expectations, maybe it doesn't make sense to stay married. <laughs> so sometimes expectations are a normal part of life and uh, need to be taken into account. Or sometimes the expectations people have for us are unreasonable. But um, they come from a real need that people have, maybe behind the expectation, maybe they're suffering. And so, can we look behind the expectation people have at uh, why the expectation is there rather than dismissing it? That often helps. Then we can address those in some way with people. Um, When expectations involve um, something unreasonable that uh, we buy, you know, that we, not healthy for us to buy into then it helps if we develop our own self-confidence and uh, be confident in ourselves that we don't have to take responsibility for others and we don't have to um, necessarily look good in other people's eyes. We don't have to always have people's approval Um, and that can help not being pulled into their expectations.
0: Next, are two questions from Cynthia in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, we're going to start with the first one. I actually remember that mention of your skill. Uh, You said once that you did not meditate when you wrote your dissertation. You said you had to give up some of your quality of mind in order to get the document written. I want to ask, why is writing the dissertation different from other activities? With kids, I can understand we have to follow their schedules, but dissertation writing is much more flexible. Why didn't meditation give you more time when you were writing?
1: Thank you, Cynthia, for that. And uh, yes, of course, uh, I think dissertation can be very similar to almost all other activities in the sense that we can practice with it and do it with the same mind, relaxed mind, open mind. And, um, and uh, maybe in an ideal world, I would have engaged with my dissertation in that way. But uh, if I was going to do it that way, it would have taken me a lot longer than it took, and uh, I was not willing to spend uh, a, a few more years doing it slowly and carefully and mindfully in the way that would keep uh, a higher quality in my mind. I thought that there was more value in being finished with it, and in the process sacrificing the quality of my mind. Now, for some people, maybe that's not healthy. It worked okay for me, and for me, my you know, if anything, my attachment was to a high quality mind. So I had to kind of you know, be willing to let go of that and be okay with you know, being a little bit more, more uh, you know, stressed and, and absorbed. And so the answer to the question is that the dissertation writing for me was different than many other because I put myself under a time limit to get it done. And so what, it, what I did then was uh, I took a three-month period of time and then a second time of one month where I did what I called a dissertation retreat, and that's all I did was I stayed home I didn't leave home for three months and um, and and uh, worked and worked I, I probably I, my guess is I worked 14-15 hours a day uh, non-stop seven days a week in order to really pour myself into it and that worked for ten weeks the last two weeks I started getting too tired to keep it up but it worked um, and uh, and so that kind of obs- almost obsessive quality of just full-time engagement this intellectual activity just Using my mind, using my thinking mind, uh, my analytical mind, all day long, um, without the uh, break, without meditation, without settling and relaxing, it uh, led to a certain kind of you know decrease in the calm, the openness, certain kind of clarity that my mind had. But I felt, for me, not only because of the time limit I had for myself, but also because uh, the kind of analytical work, work that it required, the kind of reflection and thinking about it. Uh, the way my mind works, I felt I really needed to be completely absorbed in that world, because when I I'd learned that when I didn't do my dissertation, took time off, I took lots of time off in my doctoral time to go on retreat and do other things. Um, but when I was away from it, uh, I'd lose touch with it, and my mind wouldn't be so creative and involved in the ideas of it. And in fact, sometimes I'd come back to work on my dissertation and say, "Why am I bothering with this?" <laughs> And, uh, and so the only way to get through it was, uh, for me, was to really uh, pour myself into it and make it my whole life for a period of time. Mm. And um, so that's a, that's a choice I made. I don't know if it was the wisest choice, but it's, at the time it seemed like the choice to make. And uh, so hopefully that the, answers the question.
0: Okay, so the next question from Cynthia is, uh, she wants to know if you could explain what's the difference between attitude and intention? Somewhat related when I talk to people about Buddhism and the teaching that good intentions bring happiness. People respond by saying that they know a lot of mean folks who are perfectly happy. So what do I say about that? I agree that for myself, good intentions is a great way to go. But I can't speak for others.
1: So Cynthia, this is a nice question. A question that many people have. And I begin by saying that one of the ways of feeling some happiness or or well-being, is to be happy with uh, the intentions that you have. And if you're paying attention to what motivates you, uh, which many people don't, then uh, uh, it's possible to feel, oh, those motivations are really good, and feel content and happy with having them. Or to feel um, uh, uh, somehow distressed or upset about oneself, if one's intentions are ones that are, are intending to cause harm for other people. So very, there's a very direct connection that way, between happiness and intention. I suspect that, the, that most of the people who um, are mean folks, as you say, who are perfectly happy, they are probably not paying much attention to themselves, probably not much mindfulness. And if they really felt their meanness, they'd feel that they're also suffering in the midst of whatever happiness they're having. Um, the difference between attitude and intention... Um, perhaps they're related. I, I kind of um, think of intention as being more the, uh, the specific purpose and motivation uh, behind what we're doing, particular events, things we're doing. Whereas attitude is the general uh, approach that we have, general attitude or feeling or reactivity we have when we engage in things. So I can have an intention... To go and help my neighbor, and the intention is one to care for my neighbor who's sick and to, and, to, and help them out, that could be the intention that's operating. However, for some reason that day I didn't get enough sleep, and um, my car doesn't start, and uh, I got a letter from the IRS saying I owe more money, and, and that, so this has really kind of uh, been a little bit depressing for me, all these things, and so the general attitude I have is one of being grumpy. And so, I carry that grumpiness with me, uh, even when I am helping my neighbor with the intention is to help the person, and hopefully the grumpiness I, you know, doesn't spill over on my neighbor. So I think of, myself. I think of attitude as more the general um, f- mood with which we approach what's going on. But I also realize there is no hard and fast separation between or a di- di- difference between them. They overlap quite a bit. The word attitude and intention, how it works. And then the question of uh, justice, I think it's behind this, is um, or how intention works in people's lives. And if intention brings happiness, uh, why are some people happy who are, don't seem to have good intentions? Uh, I like to say that um, there's not a one-to-one correlation between our good intentions and our happiness, but um, our good intentions tend towards creating a happier person. Um, tend towards uh, creating greater benefit for the people. But there's no guarantee. Um, so many uh, variables in a person's lives that can shift and change. So, you, you know, you might a person might do a lot of good, act on a lot of good intentions in life, but then end up with some kind of crisis and tragedy that makes it very hard to be happy because of that. But we tend to be happier. Uh, and as we strengthen our intentions for the good... Uh, uh, the, the strength of that sometimes will carry us through times of crisis in an easier, more beneficial way.
0: Okay. Next question from Teresa uh, Darwin in Australia. Um, she says, My younger brother was abused by my father, and I grew up witnessing this mistreatment, as well as receiving some. I have kept in close contact with him over the years, watching him emerge through drug abuse although he is still quite damaged. He became the sole carer for his son who has developed a mental illness. And I worry deeply about both of them. They live a long way from me. I'm wondering how to release from my worry and not take responsibility for their happiness or try to fix them or help them.
1: I'm sorry for your experience, your brother's uh, challenges and also for you. I, 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 perhaps one way of uh, helping you sort through this is to distinguish between concern and worry, and distinguish between concern and taking responsibility. Um, it's, it can be quite a healthy thing, an appropriate thing for you to have concern for your brother and uh, his son. And I hope I might hope you you would that concern, that care for them, would be ongoing. And that even from a distance, that they would know that know that there's someone in the world who cares about them, is concerned with them, and would support them in some ways if they could. Or, if, uh, um, and so to, but that doesn't that concern doesn't have to translate to worry or taking responsibility. Uh, worry generally has to do with fear, or it Is fear, and there might be reasons to be, uh, you know, concerned enough that there could be greater damage or problems for them. But fear usually, um, when people feel fear, um, uh, sometimes it's reasonable to feel fear. But it's possible to bring a lot of mindfulness to fear, so we're not caught in its grip. So that the concern, the fearful concern, can be there, can move through us pretty quickly. Sometimes can inform us and help us understand what needs to be addressed. But we're not stuck in it. We're not. And worry is frozen fear. Worry is when the when we're kind of trapped in the. In the fear, in that case, more mindfulness is helpful to look at our attitudes, our beliefs, the sense of self, how we, uh, uh, the kind of relationship we have with the people around us. There might be a lot of clarification that's be useful to do, so we can uh, separate out the worry from the concern. To not take responsibility for some people is a very hard thing, and uh, there's a lot of Buddhist teachings about not taking responsibility. Um, Hopefully, people not taking responsibility does not translate to not being responsive. We have an ability to respond, and responding in caring ways is appropriate. Responsibility is when we think, it's up to me, and only up to me. I have to fix them. I have to uh, do something. And ultimately, uh, people's well-being, people's happiness, their peace, or their lack of it... um, they have to take responsibility for themselves, especially when the people are an adult. And, to, and one of the important things to grant people and is the freedom and the, uh, to make their own choices. And people will make them anyway. And so to realize people are making their own choices, even if they're not wise, um, is helpful so that you don't take responsibility. But hopefully you stay concerned and help when it's appropriate.